So you take your seat. Please take your copy of God's Word and open to John chapter 17. John's chapter 17. We'll be looking at John 17 verses 6 through 19. If you don't have your own Bible with you, please feel free to use the Bible in the pew in front of you and you can find this on page 903. We, uh, a couple weeks ago, I preached in the morning and uh, began looking at uh, Jesus' high priestly prayers, what this chapter is called. It's one of the great passages of Scripture in which we get a peek uh, into the heart of our Savior as He's praying to the Father before He goes to endure the, the wrath of the Father on the cross in order to accomplish the work he was sent to do, which is the salvation of God's people and for his glory. And so in verses 1 through 5, we saw uh, Jesus' prayer for himself and his prayer for the Father and the Son that they would receive glory. That the Father and the Son would receive glory in the work that he is set to do. And now uh, we'll see in verses 6 through 19, Jesus begins to pray for his disciples. So with that, let's hear the word of our Lord, John chapter 17, verses 6 through 19. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Would you please pray with me? Our Father in heaven, what a rich blessing we have to peer into the heart of our Savior in this hour. God, I do ask that you would instruct our own hearts. I pray that you would draw us to yourself. I pray that you would strengthen our faith, that we would love you and that we would love your Son whom you have sent so that we may be brought before you. Help us, Holy Spirit, to believe and to keep on believing, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, 
Jesus, in this passage, is on the doorstep of enduring hell on the cross. And yet he is thinking of his disciples. Isn't that amazing? He is thinking of his disciples. And not only is he thinking of them, he's not angry that they have failed to defend him. He's not angry that Judas has betrayed him. But rather, he is praying for them. And if you've ever considered the lives of the apostles in their current condition, where they are in this place at this time as Jesus is praying, one of the things that you know about these disciples is that they are men who really need prayer. They really need prayer. And so here Jesus prays for them. What does he pray for? He prays for their protection. And he prays for their sanctification. Verse 11, Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name. In verse 15, Jesus prays, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So he prays that they would be kept or protected. And then in verse 17, we see Jesus prays, sanctify them in truth. In verse 19, I consecrate myself for their sake, that they also may be sanctified in truth. What does Jesus know? What does Jesus know? Well, he knows exactly how weak and fickle these men are. And so he prays for them. He prays for them. You think of all the great things that Jesus has done for them. He's taught them. He's shown them uh, miracles. He's enabled them to do great things. Perhaps the greatest thing that he does for them before the cross is he prays for them. Verse 14 tells us that the disciples are about to go into a world that will hate them. Jesus is fully aware what the world is going to do to them as they go about the mission that he will give them after he is resurrected and before his ascension. And consider, it's one thing, you may have some people in your life who hate you. Well, it's no big deal. They don't have to be in my life at all. Or that's small potatoes. I can deal with this. But consider that the enemy whom uh, Jesus says is going to be against them and is against them. In verse 15, he calls his enemy the evil one. It's not just the world that will be against the disciples, but it is the devil himself who will be marching against his chosen men. And Jesus knows exactly how hard it will be for them when he leaves, when he leaves them and goes to the right hand of the Father. And so what does he pray? He prays, Father, keep them. Keep them and sanctify them. What I want to do is is just for a moment, just consider whether you think that's helpful or not. It is. Of course it is. But what an encouragement this is. What an encouragement that here what Jesus is doing is he is 
pray, praying for them. He is interceding for his disciples before his great moment of horror on the cross and before their great mission, which the world will hate and the devil will be set against. And we ought to be encouraged as well because what Jesus is doing in these verses that we've read here, he does for us today. Did you know that? Romans 8 tells us that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead to the right hand of God as in, and is indeed interceding for us. Hebrews tells us that Christ lives to intercede for us. So what God's Word tells us is that this is what Jesus is doing for His people this morning. If you are in Christ, Jesus is doing this for you. He is standing for you. He is presenting you before the Father by name. And the Father listens to His Son and loves His Son and will meet the needs of those who are on the lips and the heart of Jesus Christ. And Jesus prays. What does He pray? That we be kept and sanctified. Isn't that a comfort? And perhaps this morning you are here and you may look nice, you've taken a shower and you smell nice, and you may tell everyone that you've met in Sunday school or in the Great Hall or wherever, I'm, I'm fine, everything's going well, but in truth, you're afraid to say, actually, life is really hard right now. Perhaps you're facing some really strong temptations and you don't know what to do. Or you're going through a difficult trial. Let me tell you, if you are in Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian believing in Him, He is praying for you. He is praying for you. You, particularly you. Your name, your concerns, your struggles are on His heart and brought before the Father. Be encouraged, Christian, that we have a great high priest who understands our weaknesses, our temptations, our difficulties. And so we see here Jesus praying for his disciples in these intense hours before he submits himself before the cross. What a humble Lord and Savior we have. Now, as we consider this prayer, what I want us to do is is take note of the interesting things here that Jesus, while he's praying, he's he's giving a description of who his disciples are. I think this is important because we learn important things about them, but it's not just a history lesson about who the disciples were, but rather because we will learn these Uh, principles, these truths about who the disciples are, will actually learn what is true of every real Christian. What is true of every Christian. And you may say, well, the disciples were different. And yes, they were. They were unique in their calling. They had a calling that you and I don't have. And yet they were not unique in who they were as believers. They were sinners in need of a Savior. And so I want us to consider 
This morning, uh, as Jesus, as we look at this prayer, Jesus' fourfold description of the disciples here. We have a fourfold description of the disciples. And first we see in verse 6, we see that these men, these disciples were a gift given to Jesus. They were a gift given to Jesus by the Father. Look at verse 6. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. So Jesus is speaking of the disciples, and he's saying uh, that they are given to me. God, they are yours, Father, and you've given them to me. And again, you may say, well, the disciples are special, aren't they? But actually, earlier in John, Jesus says the same thing of all Christian believers. In John 6, he says this, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. He's talking about you. If, you, if indeed you are in Christ. And you see what Jesus is doing is he's highlighting the most fundamental reality of every Christian believer. That if you are in Christ then you are someone who is given as a gift to Jesus. You are given as a gift to Jesus, and you belong to Him. That is the most basic truth about yourself. You belong to Jesus Christ. You were given as a gift. Now one of the things that this implications of this is that, again, if you are a Christian this morning, your salvation does not depend upon the strength or the weakness of your grasp of Jesus Christ. Yes, you must have faith, but it does not depend upon the strength or the weakness of Jesus, of your grasp of Jesus Christ. I mean, have you ever been in one of those moments where you just think, Lord, I'm too weak to hold on to you? But it's not about the strength or the weakness of your faith. You must have faith, but you have to understand that your salvation is in the mighty hands, the mighty grasp of the living God. So even if your faith is weak, your salvation is still secure because it is anchored in the eternal purposes of God. You are a gift to Jesus Christ. Again, doesn't that help us to hear this on the lips of our Savior before He goes to the cross? That all those whom God has given to Him, He, he has them. They, we belong to Him. You know, interestingly, we, we often think of, of Jesus as a gift to me, right? Jesus is a, is a great gift to me. And that's true. Of course it's true. My salvation, my, my knowing God, everything that comes with it, it. It's a gift. It's a gift to me. But, but have you ever considered the way that God perhaps views you is that you and I who are in Christ are actually a gift, God's gift of love to His Son, Jesus Christ. You are a gift to Jesus Christ. So if you're a believer, whether you're weak in your faith, mature in your faith, anywhere in between, the question now is, what kind of gift are you? What kind of gift are you? Are you the kind of gift that makes your Savior glad? A gift that loves Him with all your heart and all your mind. 
See, these disciples were men who were given to Christ by God. We see secondly in verses 6 through 8 that the disciples were men who obeyed God's word. If you pick up at the second half of verse 6 and read through verse 8, it says this, Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and now they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So the disciples were a gift given by the Father to the Son. But what is it that sets the disciples apart as a, as a gift of love? Well, we see here in verse 6 that they, the disciples have kept your word. In other words, the salvation of these men is seen in their obedience to the word of God. And in verse 7, they see Jesus' words as God's words. So they know that Jesus comes from God. Look at verse 7. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. And then in verse 8, they believe that Jesus was sent by God. They saw Jesus. They believed. They obeyed. They kept God's word. And this is what set them apart as this precious gift to Christ. But I I read this and I think, isn't it interesting how the disciples here are described as men who keep God's word? Again, you read read through the disciples and you see how often these these men show their unbelief. And Jesus himself rebukes them, Oh, you of little faith! How often did they fail Jesus in one way or another? Or misunderstand Him? It seems like they had really thick skulls at times. And yet when Jesus is praying for them, again, before He goes to the cross, He prays for them as men who have obeyed God's Word. As men who have kept God's Word. Again, we ought to be encouraged by this. Yes, the disciples showed obedience that was sometimes shallow. However, it was real. It was real. It wasn't fake. And Jesus knew their hearts. Jesus knew their hearts. You may remember the end of John 6. uh, There's a scene where there are many who are surrounding, following Jesus, and they're calling themselves disciples, And it just becomes too much for them. And they turn around and they walk away. And it says in the Bible that they no longer walk with Him. And there stand the twelve. And Jesus, all these men have left. They're gone. They they wanted to follow the Savior. And they're gone now. They've left. And Jesus turns to the twelve and He asks this question. Do you want to go away as well? Imagine perhaps some of the disciples looking around saying, what's going on here? Should we go too? But what does Peter say? He says this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So yes, there are times where the disciples' faith may have been weak, or shallow, but it was real. It was true. And what we see here is Jesus is praying for them. 
Instead of saying, God, would you just knock them in the head so they will understand? That's not what he says. And we see the suffering servant here, don't we? A a bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning uh, wick he will not quench. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that is your Savior. Do you know that? That is your Savior. You know, you and I might delight in highlighting the flaws of the disciples. Jesus before the Father says, they have kept my word. Jesus knows who they are. He knows everything about them, but he knows who believes in him. What a generous Savior we have. Jesus deals with his own so kindly. He deals with people who falter. He does not treat us in the ways that our sins deserve. He's a God of grace and mercy. Thirdly, we see of these disciples in verse 10 that the disciples lived lives that brought glory to Jesus. Look at verse 10. Jesus says this, All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Again, another amazing statement. We wonder, in what sense have the disciples glorified you? Acts 2 has not yet come. Wait until you see what they do when you go to the cross. They're often arrogant. They're often ignorant. Do you remember that time when James and John asked Jesus if they could call down fire from heaven to destroy a Samaritan village? Where's the godliness in that? Where's the glory of God and Christ in that? And yet, despite all their failures, they still, Jesus says, I am glorified in them. Now, of course, they brought glory to Him by believing in Him, by obeying Him. Their faith was true. That glorifies Jesus. And we bring glory to Jesus when we trust in Him, when we, when we believe in Him, and when we bow to Him. But notice in verse 10, it says, Jesus says, I am glorified in them. I think Jesus is saying here is that He is glorified not by what they do, not by what they have done, He's glorified by who they are. By who they are to Him. I think there's something we need to understand that it is, if you are in Christ, it is who you are. Who is what you are in relation to Christ that brings glory to Him. If you've ever doubted God's love for you in Christ, remember this. Many of you were here last Saturday for Will and Hope's uh, wedding. And perhaps you were sitting there and and, and thinking as the ceremony was going on and perhaps reflecting on your own life. If you've been married for some time or you want to be married, perhaps you were thinking, what is it that brings people together to this point? What is it? How do people come together? How are people drawn to each other? Those of you who have been married perhaps were thinking about your own wedding and You know, what is it? Why did she say yes? And men, you're probably thinking, it's not because of all the great things I did for her. And you might be thinking, and it's also not because of all the great things she did for me, though I'm sure she did many. You see, it's not what they do for you. It's who they are. 
She is my beloved. He is mine. Of course, what you do and who you are, they go together. Of course they do. But the important thing is not what the person does. It's what the person is, who the person is to you. Another example, I remember one couple telling me not long after they were married, a year or so after they were married, and they were talking about uh, how um, they loved being married, though they were very poor. They said, before we got married, we would have to meet, we would go out on dates, we'd have to pay money to go to a restaurant, money that we didn't really have uh, just to see each other. And now that we're married, we get to spend every day together eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and it's great. It's not about the food. It's not about the nice restaurants. It's not about all the great things that you do, though, though, though those things are fun and wonderful. And I think Jesus is highlighting that here. That these disciples were men who loved Jesus. And Jesus loved them. And so you need to hear that Jesus is not most glorified by all the works that you do. Though God does command us to do good works, those who are in Christ. But He is most glorified by your love for Him. Do you love Him? And isn't it an amazing thing to think my love for Jesus brings glory to the one who created me and all that is around me. He loves that. He loves that. The eternal Son of God. And so they bring glory to Him. And fourthly, we see the disciples now are set apart from the world by God. In verses 6, 15, and 16, we see three times here Jesus says that these men have been set apart from the world. Let's look at verses 15 and 16. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. You see, these are men who once belonged to the world, but now they belong to Jesus Christ. And when he says the world here, he's talking about that that domain, that dominion where God is not honored. Where God is not honored in Jesus Christ. It is the place where God is ignored. Where man is made king and man's desires are made preeminent. You you know, in such a place, in this place, in the world, God may be acknowledged in theory... But in practice, he's ignored, and his word despised, and his gospel unbelieved. But that's not where the disciples live any longer. They belong to a new kingdom. Colossians 1 speaks of it as this. He says, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, when you come to Christ in faith, when you become a Christian, you are given a fresh, new passport. You belong to a new kingdom. You're rescued from a kingdom of darkness, and you're brought into a new and better kingdom. You have a new citizenship, and that is the kingdom. You belong to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so Christian believers are set apart from the world because we no longer live under the dominion of the world. No longer our master. Our king is Jesus Christ himself. 
We belong to the kingdom of grace. We no longer serve under the tyranny of darkness, but we're brought into the loving kingdom of light, the kingdom of of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the men Jesus is praying for. So I want to ask a question for you to think about is this. What does that mean? What, What then is a Christian? What is a Christian? From here, these verses, I think we see these four things. We see someone who was given to the Son by the Father as a gift. We see, secondly, someone who obeys God's Word. Thirdly, we see someone who brings glory to Jesus. And fourthly, we see someone who is set apart from the world by God in Christ Jesus. Verse 16, Jesus says his disciples don't belong to this world any more than I do. They belong to an eternal kingdom. They are men who see the world for what it really is. Even if they are afraid of it, they see it for what it really is. And they have a new citizenship and it will last forever. Does the description of the disciples here, does that describe you? Do these qualities that Jesus prays before God, does that describe you? Have you been given to Christ? Do you obey His Word? Do you believe His Word? Do you love Him? Do you give glory to Jesus? Have you tasted, have you known what it is to be in the new kingdom, in the kingdom of Christ? And you might be here and you say, I I, I don't know. How can I know? I'm interested in these things, but how can I know? I want to ask you, what do you love? What, is the, what are the things? What is the thing that your heart pursues? And what is it that you pursue with your heart? What are the things you give your money to? What are the things you spend your time on? Your thoughts and your energy? I'm not saying you can't enjoy other things, but what is it that really is, is, is your great love? What would we see if we could somehow... Look inside of you and see what is it that makes your heart beat? Would it be Jesus Christ? Would you be able to say along with Thomas, the doubter, my Lord and my God? You see, these disciples weren't perfect. And you don't have to be perfect either. But you know, they they did love. They loved the Lord Jesus Christ. Every believing life, whether it's weak or mature in faith, whether you are wise in godliness or at times foolish and prone to mistakes, every believer will have in them the desire to bow the knee to Jesus and do His will. The will of Him who loved me first and gave His life for me. Isaac Watts, in his great hymn, When I Surveyed the Wondrous Cross, wrote this, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so, so, divine, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. If you've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who loves you, as he loves the disciples here, 
Can there be any other possible response to him? If I had everything in the world to give you, God, it's too little. It's not enough. The one who prays for you, do you love him? Do you pray, Lord, reign in my life, you who are king over all, that I might bring you glory, because you are the one who's brought salvation to me. May may this be the mark of your life. And I pray that if you don't know Christ, that you would come to know the sweet and amazing grace that he has for those who love him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would help us to delight in you greatly. Help us to see and consider how much of a priority we are to you. And I pray that you would fill our hearts with love for the one who has loved us first. I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.